Welcome to How We Run, a podcast where we examine how nonprofits become successful. I'm Trent Stan, CEO of the Eisner Foundation. And I'm Julie Lacacher, founder of Good Ways, Inc. So today we're talking to Tony Brown from Heart of Los Angeles. Trent, why did you want to talk to Tony? I just think Tony's a really smart guy and he's been doing this for a really long time. There's nothing that's come about in the last 18 months that was new to Tony. He's been toiling in this field for for a long time, has a lot of equity in what he's doing. It's just truly authentic and it's exciting to speak with him. Plus, he's gone through a lot at Heart of LA in the last couple of years with a massive expansion campaign and a massive campaign to raise a lot of money which is not easy to do anytime, especially during a uh, global pandemic. He's just a really smart guy who's been doing this for a really long time. And I, I think he's very thoughtful. And, uh, and I think that he had a lot to share with, with our audience. To me, what's interesting about Heart of Los Angeles is that it started in a very grassroots place in, I want to say in 1989, I think, and it was a neighborhood program. The founder just saw that kids in his neighborhood needed some options in terms of activities, so they organized basketball games at a local church. Yeah, and to see where they've come from there is truly stunning for those of you who are running small neighborhood programs. If you have the uh, the vision and the appetite, you can grow it into something like Heart of LA, which is serving literally thousands of kids and a budget in the millions. It's refreshing to talk to somebody who's still as excited as Tony Brown is to get up every morning and do his job in a very difficult city doing very difficult work. That's a good point, because I think sometimes when you listen to interviews with people that have done something like a huge capital campaign or, or a big push for growth, you can think to yourself, look at the resources they have, look at the staff that they have. But I think to listen to this interview that you did with Tony and really think about where they started and where they are right now as it comes in incremental steps. So really any small program can get there. What lessons do you think someone should uh, listen for? Or what do you think the takeaways are with your conversation with Tony? I think one of the things that, that struck me was his humility, despite the fact that he has built a, a multi-million dollar organization. But he's constantly learning, constantly listening. And he talks a lot about how he had to learn to let go, that he had to empower his people and, and not try to be all things to all people, but to find those that had talents and, and let them do their work while still coaching and cajoling and pleading and educating, but getting out of their way and recognizing that there are other solutions to the problem other than the ones that he envisioned in his own mind. That's great. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, it's a great time. Plus, Tony's just a, a ton of fun. He's a really smart guy and a really happy guy, and uh, he just brings a lot of energy to the table every day. Oh, he's a bright, shining star of a human, for sure. Uh, let's take a listen. My name is Tony Brown. And I'm the executive director of Heart of Los Angeles. Thank you for being here, Tony. One of the reasons that we wanted to talk with you is that I am very familiar with the fact that your organization has taken on a massive capital campaign and expansion in the last couple of years. Tell me a little bit about where you are in that process. Heart of LA really is all about giving kids a chance to be successful. And we try to do it through free uh, after-school academic arts and athletic programs, health and wellness, and family services. Uh, just to ensure that uh, every child has what they need to ultimately grow up in this city and be their best self. We've been able to 
really rapidly grow, I'd say over the last 10 years and most recently in the last two, three, four years to serve 74% more young people uh, in our neighborhood, which is five minutes west of downtown LA. Part of that growth meant we need to go from serving, gosh, I think 1,200 youth many years ago to now over 2,100. It also meant that having 30 staff way back when to now having 90 staff was going to have major impacts on the structures and the systems and the operational procedures we'd have to now put in place to be able to sustain uh, an organization poised to, to deliver those types of services to that many people. And then now, as you mentioned with the capital campaign, we're ready to expand again. So we're going to go from serving 2,100 youth to 4,000 kids and families uh, in this Rampart district, a Westlake area of Los Angeles. So what's that mean in terms of dollars? How big is your annual budget and what were you trying to raise for this particular campaign? So our operating budget before we began the campaign was right around, I want to say, just getting into the $5 million a year range. And now we come out of the capital campaign with a budget that's just a little over $6 million. And we had to raise about 14 and a half to $15 million in capital campaign funds to build a brand new 25,000 square foot arts and recreation center, uh, which is now sort of the flagship building on a campus of four buildings. And is that project done? The project is finally complete. <laughs> so we have started to deliver all sorts of services and programs to community as we had envisioned. It was our hope that not knowing that there was a pandemic coming, it was still our hope to be able to offer clinics and eyeglasses and optometry exams and dental fluoride cleaning. But now we've really done not only those things, but we've vaccinated nearly 2,000 community members uh, from the site and the center. We've distributed lots and lots of food every week, fresh produce to families to help put food on their table. We distributed grocery ship cards. We've really just tried to meet the basic uh, essential needs that our families and our youth would need to survive and navigate through this terrible crisis most recently. So you've obviously had great successes with raising that kind of funds and expanding your program. What are the, some of the things that you wish you knew when you started that campaign? What do I wish I knew? I guess I would say, I, I wish I had a, an even larger executive leadership team through that time. I wish I would have had more of my staff capable and ready to direct and manage as opposed to just be all-star practitioners and they're given areas of expertise. So I think it speaks to just the infrastructure needed to be able to both sustain a growing organization but then also lead it through a capital campaign where we're adding so much in terms of facility and also time required to develop new funders through that process. So I would say you learning to delegate even more than I was before is something that I've learned coming out of the, out of the capital campaign, building out my team really makes a huge difference. And I wish I would have done that at the beginning, <laughs> but I, as it turned out, it took a sabbatical to get me to realize, wait a minute, I need to give my bench opportunities to grow and develop and come into their own so that I can maximize their potential too. It's that old adage, we all do better when we all do better. <laughs> so uh, creating that space and that room for others to assume various aspects uh, or responsibilities of leadership uh, would help us all get to the goal a little bit faster, a little bit more smoothly. That's fascinating. So you actually had to be away to realize what you needed back in the organization. And I know that you, you did your sabbatical 
thanks to the the generous support of the Durfee Foundation, which uh, oh, which has has made those types of opportunities available for talented CEOs and executive directors in, here in Los Angeles. But I just want to follow up on that just a tad, which is, did you allow your existing executive team to take on more responsibility, or did you bring in others from outside the organization, or both? It was actually a, a combination of both almost. So we took folks who were within the organization who were maybe stuck at a at a director level, but not necessarily a senior director level of both management and leadership uh, at, within the organization. And we said, okay, maybe it's time to have our very first senior director of programs. And maybe it's time for me to have an, a deputy director, someone who could really focus on the internal operations of the organization while I focused on external partnerships and more of the fundraising. And also maybe it was time to graduate uh, and uh, our development director to a senior level role and also expand that department. And finally, maybe it was time to really make sure that we uh, operationalize our HR functions within the organization. And that one actually involved a new hire. So we added to the team there. And then we elevated three other positions essentially into what is now an executive leadership team. So where there were two sort of folks at the very top of our org chart right before I went away on sabbatical, when I returned, we had added now what has become five folks. So uh, much better <laughs> and still not enough. And yet not enough, but much, much better. No, absolutely. This is one of the frustrations of the nonprofit world, right? As we're talking about a, a five, $6 million a year organization that is supposed to have an org chart that is essentially one CEO and then a ton of soldiers. God forbid that you have some leadership levels and an org chart that allows you to manage this organization in the way that you would a for-profit company. We have to be as lean as humanly possible at all times. And we don't ever take into account what that means for operations and delivery of services. That's exactly right. So let's talk about how Heart of LA runs. What do you think makes your team run well? I think especially now having that team uh, is everything. And even with COVID and the inability to meet in person, maybe as frequently as we obviously were pre-COVID, with an executive management team like we have, it's not really been a barrier. We've used virtual meetings to our benefit. And we honestly, I feel like the crisis, if nothing else, brought our team closer. And we've participated in self-care activities together. Our various teams throughout the organization, leadership teams meet regularly. We often begin those sessions with icebreakers. We have agenda setting at the front end of every one of those meetings where everyone can contribute agenda items. And we decide, okay, how many of these are we going to get to today? Do we need to have another meeting later in the week? How pressing are these other ones? And, but you, but you set the table that way. And then we'll contextualize those agenda items. And then we solve things together as a team. And I, I noticed as I've worked around the different teams and sat in on different team meetings, that's how they're all starting to function. And it's great. Uh, my executive leadership team, we meet once a week. And then outside of that, our team leaders are hosting uh, open office hours where directors and, and other employees are able to pop in and receive maybe some mentoring or be able to feel heard. And my deputy director and I, we meet once a week outside of all of that. And I just try to be a good listener for that position and offer thoughts based on what I hear. And so really for the past 18 plus months, the majority of these interactions, they have been virtual, but they've also allowed us to record the notes from those meetings and, and, and treat them. I feel like these meetings are treated a lot like a strategic plan 
in that there's assignments given, there's accountability that's called for, and then there's follow-up and maybe some sort of dashboarding, right? This is what we did last time. This is what we talked about. These are the people who were assigned to the task, and this is what was accomplished, or this is where they are with a task. So I'm noticing that in order to have, you know, well-functioning teams in moments like these, and just in general, having really strong feedback loops is great. And it, it's always this situation to where we never think we're, we're perfect at it, but we're always striving to get better. And I, I think that's really what happens when you have this type of communication and participation through your teams. So obviously the world has changed dramatically in the last 18 months. For most of us, that starts with COVID. But there have been a lot of other ways that the world has changed. Tell me a little bit about something you've done, either personally or at Heart of LA, to adapt to the changing environment. I think personally what I've done is I've come to the realization that I might have a vision or an idea that I think will solve for a problem that I'm seeing or we're seeing. And in the past, I might have tried to make that solution come to life in a very perfect way. <laughs> and I truly believe that perfect can be the enemy of the good, number one. And number two, I also think that it's really important in those moments to, to delegate the responsibility for bringing those solutions to life or the vision to life. And I've become less reliant on it being my vision and I'm the holder of that, but rather sharing the responsibility across my team. And then also making investments in my team. I need to put effort into training that next level of employee to be able to be a problem solver as well and come up with a solution. Maybe not be the solution, but they need to be able to be trained to come up with solutions and also delegate within their own teams and manage those processes. So. I'd rather spend on training and development to help my teammates become really equipped to be able to handle some vision holding as we try to get there. Because otherwise, if I try to hold on to it myself, lots of things were falling through the cracks. Maybe I was doing a great job and coming up with great, awesome ideas, but my staff was behind me, was stretched too thin, burnt out, not feeling like they were having the tools and the resources they needed to help their teams be successful. And it just, it was very problematic. You can't stay under resource for too long. I think those are the, the big lessons I've learned. And how did it get put into practice when the pandemic first presented itself and schools closed right away, but we went directly to our leaders um, at the program level. And we said, Hey, listen, guess what? From this day going forward, we're all going to be meeting weekly and we're going to solve for this together. We're going to do listening together. And we're going to share ideas and we're going to comfort each other. We're going to extend grace and we're going to come up with the best ideas to help our community navigate through this incredibly crushing time. And in the case of Heart of Los Angeles, that meant that we weren't just going to be an after school program. We were now going to have to adapt to become an after school program, a program that helps stabilize families in areas of crises. That meant that the, the classroom teacher might spend some time teaching language arts, math, science, music, visual arts, or PE classes virtually. But that also means that they're going to spend the rest of that time doing weekly wellness calls to families to see how are you do, what is it that you need to get, to get through tomorrow and the next day. And that meant that they were going to be carrying some heavy burdens. That meant we we're going to have to train and we we're going to have to heal and heal the healers. It became much more in depth and, you know. If we tried to do that alone, obviously we wouldn't be able to do it. It just took the might of so many to be able to make that happen. And that's what happened. We shared the leadership responsibility and 
I'd say the other part of that is that we also had to develop and tighten up our operational procedures and policies because of that that was going to help our staff feel more secure about where the organization, how long the organization was going to be digging deep until what end. And it showed in an outwardly way, it showed how much we cared about the individuals who were doing this work. We won't go let things get too far out of hand. One of the things that I'm optimistic about is that organizations like yours and yours in particular seem to have gone through a relative transformation in terms of thinking, in terms of processes, in terms of elevating young talent. And that when this pandemic hopefully is over, I think organizations like yours are actually going to be stronger and will be better positioned moving forward to bring about sustainable and, and transformational change. So I, I am optimistic that good things can emerge from, from this, this relatively dark time. Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. So one of the things that we like to do at, at How We Run is to invite wildly successful nonprofit CEOs onto the show. And then asks them to tell us about a mistake that they have made and what you learned from that mistake. So I'm curious, Tony, in, in, in your career, as you've built Heart of LA into a, a sustainable force, tell us about a mistake you made and what you learned from it. There's a theme to my mistakes. I've noticed in reflecting on that question. I think that in the beginning, because I felt like I had a clear vision for how we were going to get someplace, I wanted to handpick each and every player on my board. I don't mean on my board of directors necessarily. Pretend that this is a chess board. You want to pick every precious piece. I wanted to also be the one to train every single piece <laughs> that was on the board. And then I wanted to be able to develop new partnerships and take us to new places and, and create new resources. I thought, okay, the shortcut to doing that would be hire really competent people who are self-starters, <laughs> right? And who have wonderful initiative and meet with them philosophize and ideate, and we go together. They're professionals. And so my big mistake was that I held on to uh, allowing them to have that kind of autonomy with less control and procedure and support, honestly. And I tried to support their growth through individual meetings with them. But I realized, wait a minute, there's not enough time in the day to give each and every sort of director level position the attention that they deserve or need. And I hired a senior director of programs way too late. By then my staff felt, I think we we're starting to feel burnt out. They were starting to feel supported morally, but not supported practically. And I just, in essence, waited too long and we were growing rapidly and I was asking for more and more and I was adding more and more people and I wasn't able to go deep with any one of them. And that was a problem because then what ended up happening was that anytime big decisions needed to be made, they were always coming back to me to make the big decision. And I realized, oh my goodness, I didn't create enough opportunity for them to grow to where they had the confidence to make those decisions. They didn't have clear policies and guidelines by which to measure making the best decision possible that they could make. And in a way, as much as I was trying to advance us further faster, I actually probably stunted a little bit of the quality of growth that we could have achieved in that time period. Having said that, I sometimes I look at my organization and we have so many different pillars of programs and serve that sometimes I look at the organization and say, gosh, our arts organization could actually be its own standalone 501c3. Uh, our athletics program could do the same thing. Our college access program could be the same way. And how do I bring everyone together? 
And if it was just me responsible for doing that, plus external functions for the organization, uh, it wasn't getting done effectively, right? So I needed to develop that uh, internal infrastructure, like you said earlier, to really help us to have the required added management structures, allow special for our specializations to, to occur, to have greater operationalization and oversight so that things don't get away from us. Adding clear operational policies and organizational procedures has actually made it a lot easier for our employees to find creative and flexible ways to get through challenges like pandemics or growth. It's so interesting to me that you would say that. And sometimes I see young executive directors who, who tell their staff that they love them and that they support them. But sometimes the best way that you can love and support your younger staff is to give them, you know, you and I are both former ball coaches, but you just have to give the kid the ball and tell them to go pitch. You can wrap your arm around him in the dugout all day long, but, but sometimes you just have to give him the ball and, and send him out to the mound. So that's so interesting to me that you think of that as a mistake is that you, you didn't empower your people enough while you were wrapping your arms around them and telling them that they were great and that they were part of the fabric and the family. You also, yeah. would need, you also needed them. Now go get me a strikeout. That's right. And then what they would tell me is back is that athlete would say, Hey, look, but you, you got to show me the mechanics of how to pitch. Like you've got to spend some time and give me the fundamentals. And I was missing that part. I think as we grew rapidly, right. There weren't enough trainers to help these guys and gals be game ready. <laughs> and so uh, it's been neat to build out that infrastructure in more recent times. That's true. And I've seen some really great results there. That is great. That is good. That's part of our obligation, right? It's, it's generativity to, to pass it on to the next group. So what's your big idea for moving forward and, and, and how do you get there? I'm, I'm very passionate I, uh, about educational equity and equity in general, right? I truly believe in humankind that we have everything that we need to be successful on this planet. We just have to put the right pieces together and integrate better. And we obviously have structures and systems that have tried to unfortunately create the opposite. But having said that, I want to equitably and inclusively prepare the next generation for the future. And I think we get there by integrating the resources that we have within our city. One example would be schools. I'd like to see our schools better integrate with both in-school, after-school providers and off-campus after-school youth development programs like Heart of LA. I'd like to see our parks and our schoolyards be shared with youth development providers, folks who actually know, who can look at a budget and say, this is what it, this is what it takes to be able to serve this many more kids at quality, right? Those folks need to be in a room with the school boards to say, listen, you've got vacant land during these hours. How can we maximize this resource so that greater equity is achieved? Like the families and the communities living in and around these schools, how do we better integrate this whole bastion of <laughs> senior citizens, right? Who are now coming into the retirement years uh, but still have plenty left in the tank to, to pass forward. How do we integrate them with the youth providers and with our schools in school and out of school? And also my other big idea is how do we integrate community colleges with our four-year colleges and university? And this is my crazy idea that I would love if, if, if folks would accelerate the growth of this idea. I, I do love watching college football. And think about the UCLA football games at the Rose Bowl. And for those of you who've been following Bruin football for the last 10 to 12 years, you go to the Rose Bowl and most often there's a lot of empty seats. So much so that they now put tarps over it, spell out UCLA for all those seats they can't sell. And usually, sadly, in the past, we see more folks from Wisconsin overpowering the Rose Bowl seats than we do UCLA Bruins. 
what if every community college was affiliated with a uh, four-year college and university? What if it was branded as such? What if I could go to LA Community College and that was, say, also UCLA? And what if it was branded as UCLA? What if by going to LA Community College, wherever you are in your pipeline and your journey, received a student card for UCLA? So that when we now go to the Rose Bowl, that stadium is packed. Everyone feels like they're a part of a much more vast community of learning and growing. And we lift away the stigmas of a two-year or, or a certificate or an associate's degree and a four-year degree. What if we could do that? Whether you like that idea or you don't, the idea is, what if we were to integrate these different resources that we have throughout our society and throughout our city? I have a feeling we'll have a more equitable city and a more equitable country. I love to see that. I, I know there's underutilization, both in two-year and in four-year college and universities of resources. And there's an opportunity to maximize. I know there's underutilization on our school campuses too, K-12. K and I know there's underutilized parks around our city. And I know that there's underutilized caring great folks in the same pockets around Los Angeles who are trying to get something going for the kids in that neighborhood who, because they're not a large organization or not a school, are not able to ever get the infrastructure and resources they need to that same community that struggled for now decades, pre-riots, through the uprising, and even now. And so I would like to extend an extra helping hand to those communities and those grassroots efforts. I'm with you hundred percent. Nothing makes me sadder than driving by a public high school at five o'clock on a Tuesday and seeing it completely closed up. It should be the jewel of the community. It should be a place for adult classes. It should be a place for dancing. It should be a place for kids to practice sports who don't necessarily go to that school. It should be where we have elections. It should be the center of our community. We should all know our local public schools and we all should be there. And then don't tell me that won't improve overall participation in the community. An empty high school at night is no different to me than the empty seats that you talk about at the Rose Bowl. It's just it's a wasted opportunity. We, we yeah. can do better. We talk about under-resourced communities all the time and communities are under-resourced, but there are resources in those communities that we're not putting to full use. Your, your example of, of senior citizens is a great one. We have tons of seniors in these communities who are just dying for a chance yeah. to give back to their community. And we're telling them stay inside and watch TV. It's just, it's an abdication of the civic compact on our part and we just have to do better. So I love your idea of, of let's just find ways to utilize our resources and bring ourselves better together. Yes. So you, as a, as a sage leader, what is your number one tip for someone in your position, whether that be a management tip, a fundraising tip, or a tip for growing your organization? I, I think as you grow and as you want to grow, build and develop a leadership team. At first, that might be board members, advisors to you. They don't cost you maybe anything on your, you know, zero bottom line. So start there. But then as you fundraise a little bit and, and have some early successes, continue to develop a leadership team and then delegate and let go and focus on your strengths, right? And, and let, and, and build around your strengths. That's the advice I would give. Don't try to be, you know, everything to everyone. Hire those who can do better 
in the areas that maybe aren't your strengths so that you can then focus on the areas that, that are most comfortable and good for you. But I would urge the building out of a leadership team, find the managers out there. If you're not a manager, find the manager. If you're a leader, great. But if you're more of a manager, then find someone who can lead in other ways. And so build it out that way. And don't try to do it alone. Having a flattened org chart at the beginning makes a lot of sense. And then as you start to make some impact happen and you start to really scale, then you need to start adding those structures and, and don't wait too long. Start adding that infrastructure, start adding the, the team and building it in. So I think that's what I've learned in my journey thus far that I've passed forward to the next generation of leaders. I love that. Find a way to not have to do it yourself. The narrative is one man, one woman against the sea. And at the end, I, I, I tell you, I've been there. You, you get swamped. The wave will come for you. I don't care how good you that's are. That's right. You've got to find some strength in numbers. Yes. It, it can be lonely, this role of being you know, the leader in the ED of an organization. And, and that's another reason for having that team sooner than later. And I'd say for those who are midway through their careers, it's important to have peers even outside your organization. Yeah. I, I love the Durfee Foundation and, and some of the other infinity groups that I get to belong to. It, it means everything to be able to have conversation with folks who truly do know what you're going through within your organization and having them. I can't urge finding them early so that you have them along the way is really important. How is your intergenerational orchestra? Oh my goodness. It's glorious. So the intergenerational uh, orchestra at Heart of Los Angeles is a community orchestra that provides youth ages 14 all the way up to 80 plus the opportunity to come together once a week and make beautiful music together in a a multicultural environment that is truly representative, you know, of our great city. This intergenerational orchestra really sought to reach into the various pockets around our city and lift them up and give them a platform to share their voice, to share their, their gifts. And I'm delighted to say that we have members who come from the very special Hawken communities that exist, oftentimes in somewhat of a shadow within our city. We have some folks from far on the west side, down on the south side of Los Angeles, central and east side, all engaging uh, and making uh, music together. And then we have that, of course, also intergenerationally. So to see a 14-year-old playing alongside someone who's in their 70s and 80s, uh, uh, the joy that they both have in, in playing these pieces and hearing the strength of a 60 plus person orchestra is really a special experience. And we're just so excited to, and grateful to the Eisner Foundation for seeding this opportunity and for all of us to come together in this way. And we're super excited to be able to share back with the community, certainly at a winter concert. And then beyond that safe outdoors under the trees and the birds and the sun and the stars in the spring. So we're on our way. But the orchestra sounds great. And maestro uh, Daniel Sook, he's a wonderful conductor. He uh, speaks Korean, Italian, and Spanish. And it's just a joy to be around. And we're, we're really working hard, but we're having fun in the process. So we're encouraging anyone who has played an instrument anywhere in their life, join me who hasn't played since high school, or join the more advanced musicians uh, who are in this orchestra. And just come to play your heart out and come join us. There can be nothing more symbolic than L.A. coming out of this COVID cocoon than people of different colors, ages, races, genders coming together to literally make music in the heart of L.A. I'm very excited. You know I'll be in the front row. I can't wait. Yes, we can't wait. <laughs>
Tony, thank you so much for being here today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, this has been such a pleasure. I think it's conversations like these that I hope uh, folks will listen and come up with their own ideas for how they're going to help make this city and this world a better place. We have a request for you, dear listeners. I'm hoping that if you enjoy how we run, that you will go and leave a review for us. Your review allows others to find us. And that's a good thing because the more people that listen, the more impact we can have on the sector and that we can bring about positive change for, for other nonprofits that are out there. So if you like what you're listening to, please leave us a review. If you want to be a guest on the show, you think you have a good story and you want to share, you can email us at info at goodwaysinc.com. And so we will see you in a week. Can't wait.